Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. That's where we are in our series and in our text today. As you're turning there, I'll just give you a little, uh, little catch-up. Um, we've been, uh, this is about our fourth week in the book of Joshua. We'll be in there for a couple more months. And this really starts, the story that we're jumping into in Joshua chapter 2 really starts all the way at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis with the blessing to Abraham. When God said to Abraham, said to one guy and his family, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. And he spelled out what that blessing looked like, right? He, he told them there were essentially three things. I'm going to give you a lot of people in your family. I'm going to give you a place for those people to dwell in, and then I'm going to rule and reign over you. And so that, that blessing there, there's three parts uh, to the, the Abrahamic blessing, the, uh, a, per, a people in God's place living under God's rule. And that's kind of been a, a synonymous phrase we've been using for some time to describe uh, what later Jesus would call the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. It comes out of the promise to Abraham. It is God's people in God's place living under God's rule. And the entire first five books of the Bible is a journey to apprehend that or to receive that. And so, you know, when, when Abraham dies, he doesn't have nearly any of those parts of the promise. Uh, most of those things are missing. He, he has a son, Isaac, and that's about where it leaves off. But by the time Genesis is over, there, uh, or excuse me, by the time Exodus comes up, there are millions of Israelites. And you just start to see as you go through the first five books of the Bible, little bits and pieces of the, the promise to Abraham being fulfilled. In Exodus, it's a lot of people. God has given Abraham a giant family. There are millions of Israelites. The only problem is they're enslaved to Egypt. So another guy comes in on the scene. His name is Moses. He delivers them uh, by the hand of God out of the, the, the power of Egypt and redeems them from slavery. It becomes their salvation story. And all of a sudden, they're wandering. He, uh, God gives Israel through Moses the Ten Commandments. And so all of a sudden you have God speaking to God's people. And uh, within a few books, two-thirds of the promise is realized. But as Moses dies, you start to get this sense that the promise is unfulfilled. By the time Deuteronomy is over and that whole section of the Old Testament, uh, that, that season of the Old Testament is done and Moses, kind of the, the overarching, overshadowing leader and figure that he is, passes away, you, you look at the text and you start to realize two-thirds of that original promise is in the bag. Israel has a lot of people and they even have the word and presence and rule of God, but they have no place. And it's that one-third of the promise that Joshua, as it is written, comes to answer. And the last three weeks, we've been looking uh, at the the first nine verses, kind of taking our time through those first nine verses because it functions as kind of an introduction and a summary of the rest of the book of Joshua. And here's some of the things that we found. It opens with that promise again. God says, hey, not only am I reminding you of a promise, but you're going to go walk into that promise. The, The name of our series Uh, for the next few weeks is stepping into God's promises. God is saying, hey, it's time for you to step into the things that I have uh, promised for you to have. And so the second week we looked at how he directs us into those 
promises through the Word of God, and then last week, the third week, is God's presence. And so, so far, we've seen that Joshua is about stepping into God's promises, being directed by God's Word, and being, being empowered by God's Spirit and by God's presence. And now, as we open up chapter 2, and we're done with that introduction and summary, the, the kind of the narrative sections of Joshua start. This is where the, the narratives and the stories start to, to kindle afresh God's movement. And what we're going to look at right now, I'm just going to read the entire thing all the way through. It's about 24 verses. But what we're about to look at are God's people for the first time peeking into the land. Or as we could say, they're peeking at God's promises. They're kindling that anticipation within them of the things that God has promised them for so long. Something I hope that we can do with the promises that God has given us here thousands of years later. But I'm going to read it. And as they peek, you'll never believe what they see. Starting in verse 1, it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, The men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went, but pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. We'll just stop right there and read the rest as we go. This is God's holy word. Heavenly Father, I just pray that just as that sense of anticipation and maybe even holy anxiety begin to stir up, not only in the spies, but in Rahab herself, I pray that that we would have that sense of anticipation today as well as we open up your word. I pray that the story of God that has been written for centuries and is still now being written with an end in mind and a goal in mind would begin to stir up the heart of your people right now. As we look at your might and your power and your glory, and your holiness, but also your love and your mercy. I pray that that would do something to us. And as we're we're gathered in this little theater in the middle of Santa Barbara, may you give us a glimpse of something that is bigger than ourselves. And may the, the grandness of what we see in your word and in you and in your son be compelling and persuasive enough to move us to follow after you. If there's anything right now in us, collectively or individually, that, is, that threatens to rob us from receiving from your fullness today, I pray that you would do the work 
by your Holy Spirit of identifying those things. As King David said, show me any wayward way within me that I may walk in the path of everlasting life. We pray that too. Show us, God. We want your fullness. And we pray that you would allow us and enable us, empower us to leave the rest behind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scene takes place in a town called Shittim. That is how you pronounce it. It's a Hebrew word for a grove of uh, acacia trees, but I'm not going to say acacia trees. I'm going to say Shittim because it's in the Bible. Everything takes place in this town as Joshua is on the verge of stepping into God's promises. And as you can imagine, it's bigger than this place, but this little town of Jericho, which we'll talk about a lot in the weeks to come, is right in the middle of his pathway. Joshua, the first thing that he does is he sends a couple of spies to go to the city of Jericho to spy out the land and to view the land. Something that I think you and I should be doing often where we live. We should be viewing the land. We should be scoping out what is before us. It's very easy to look inside, to hustle, and to surround ourselves with productivity and busyness. It's very difficult to do anything else with our time. It's a very hard place to live with a lot of free time, but we need to take into consideration the thing that God's people have done from time to time. They've stopped, they've set their their feet on a high place, they've looked out and they have viewed the land. They weren't just looking at geography, they were looking at the things that God had already promised to them. You and I need to look at the land, so to speak, that God has promised us. He has promised us healthy marriages. He has promised us healthy relationships. He has promised us a healthy, maturing church that looks like Christ. We need to be looking at those things in all of their mess and their brokenness and daydream a little bit. Lest our circumstances get us down in the dumps. We need to find that high place and look out and view the land. And so here Joshua sends out a couple people to do that. And what they see in chapter 2 almost slows down the entire narrative. It's almost like God is, is saying, yes, I'm about to do great and wonderful things, but I want to slow down for a chapter to show you something else. What they see is a woman on the outside looking in. Someone who doesn't belong to the people looking uh, looking inside longingly. This is an introduction stopping the, the, the trajectory of Joshua for an entire chapter. God introduces us to a woman by the name of Rahab. As the story unfolds, the spies find their way in her home or in her inn. Now, why are these men there? It looks sketchy as, uh, you know, at first glance, but a closer look reveals that the text actually goes out of its way. She's a prostitute. That's her job. 
The text actually goes out of its way to avoid any suggestion of sexual immorality. It's just not there. She's also not just a prostitute, but she's the innkeeper. So it's not outside of the realm of possibility. It makes sense that as the spies are roaming around Jericho at the the risk of their own lives if they get caught, they find an inn, they find a place where few people will look for them and that's where they uh, take up lodging. The main point, however, is that the text is not highlighting them, it's highlighting this prostitute. It's highlighting Rahab. Why? God seems to be interlacing her uh, all the way throughout this entire narrative, and we're supposed to know that. We're supposed to look at her. Not only is she being highlighted, but it actually puts her in a good highlight. Everything about this chapter puts her in a good light, even when she does things that we're not supposed to do, like lying. Rahab hides the spies. Uh, in verse, uh, sorry, in verse uh, uh, five, or excuse me, in verse four, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, uh, as the, the king of Jericho sends out people to find those men, it's heard through the grapevine, oh, they must be with Rahab, we saw them talking, the king sends men, says, hey, give us the men. She says, yeah, it's true that they came to me, but I didn't know who they were, I didn't know where they were going, the gate was about to be closed at dark, so those men bailed, they were out of here, and I don't know where they went. But if you presume quickly, you might overtake them. But, verse 6, she had brought them up on the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid out in order... Uh, in order on the roof. So the men pursued after uh, the Israelites on their way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Rahab hides the spies. And this is one of those things that comes up every so often as people are reading Joshua chapter 2, like, oh, Rahab lied, or maybe she didn't lie. Maybe it was a, a white foible. But, and then other philosophical discussions, like, is it okay for me to lie? Like, if it's, is it okay for me to lie if it's for the ultimate good of God's pleasure? Or, you know, if there's a battle ensuing in Santa Barbara and the walls are about to come, you know? <laughs> uh, and we make all of these, uh, 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 we open up all of these possibilities looking and focusing on Rahab's potential lie. thing you and I have to understand is the narrative kind of just reports it and never comes back to it. We have to consider the rest of the Bible that says not to lie, that we probably shouldn't lie, but it never treats her own. It neither analyzes her lie nor condones her lie. It simply reports it. And I think it does that because that's not the main point of the text. All of a sudden, in verse 6, the gates close, the pursuers are going out, and we're caught in this place where those two spies are literally trapped. They're trapped in this fortress by the name of Jericho. The writer right now is trying to create suspense for the reader. In verse 7, you're asking yourselves, perhaps, how are the spies going to get out? Or maybe you're asking, what's Rahab's part to play? She's actually already covered for them. How's she going make to make it out of this alive? You're asking this question, how are the spies going to get out? How is Rahab going make it, to make its way out of that? And the tension here that's stirring up in the reader is the sense that we are caught with no way forward. Where do we go? What do we do? You ever feel that way? 
caught in a place that you can't move from, asking yourselves, how am I going to move from this place? This is the same sense that we open up with in Joshua chapter 2. And the tension won't be resolved until verse 15. Look at, uh, turn to verse 15 with me where it says, Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And so you see kind of the, the escape plan for the spies. But all throughout the middle of chapter 2, that tension is not resolved. Meaning that the section in the middle between verse 8 and verse 14 is the focal point of this entire story. The author is building a tension and he doesn't relieve the tension until your ears being perked and your eyes being opened, you see the main point of the text and guess what it's about? It's not actually about Joshua. You never hear about him throughout this whole section. It's not about the spies either. It isn't even about Rahab, although she's the one primarily speaking. It's about who Rahab is speaking about. The author has built this climactic tension to get to this point where Rahab, a person on the outside, can begin to speak to people on the inside about this God. And look at what the text does. It puts God on display. We could say it this way. If there are people on the outside looking in, Joshua chapter 2 tells us about God's love for people on the outside. I'm just going to read verse 8 through uh, 21, big section of scripture. But I want you to get caught up in this dialogue. And this is what happens. This is what everything is building up towards. It says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone uh, within you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said to them, according to your words, so be it. Then she went away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Incredible. 
In this, we see a picture of God's love for those who are on the outside. We see it in the sense that Rahab has already heard of God's reputation. We see it in verse 8 through 10, where Rahab begins to speak of God's might. Did you catch that opening statement? God's purpose to make his name famous, stories of his works and redemption, also known as testimonies. Rahab says in verse 9 through 10, I know the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants in the land are melting before you. Why? We have heard how the Lord has dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We are trembling with despair because we have heard stories and testimonies of what your God is capable of doing. Acts of God, in this case, are followed by reverent fear in the region. When God acts, and when his kingdom is put on display, it doesn't go unnoticed. When God acts, and when his kingdom is put on display through his people, when he parts the Red Sea, when he heals the leper, when he restores broken relationships, people start to take notice. And what you often find is that those who are living in rejection and rebellion against God tend to melt like wax when they see his power being displayed. Stories of the works of God's redemption. In this section, you you see that you don't have to fight your own battles. God is for you, and he causes even your worst enemies to melt and to tremble. In our case, this would be most poignantly the devil and his demons. The New Testament would tell us that because of the cross, Jesus Christ has made demons humiliated. He put them to open shame, triumphing over them by the cross. In Ephesians uh, chapter, I think it's one or two or three or four or five, he says that God has used the church to put his wisdom on display to principalities and powers. It's almost as if God is saying the church is his, his theater and his play, right? That he is using to put his power on display to demons and the devil who are trembling when they see it. Anyone ever uh, read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? There's this scene, it's a, a, a book, that's a fictional book that feels surprisingly real, uh, written between two demons, Uh, The older mentor demon, who is kind of a professor at a school of demons, who's mentoring his nephew, Screwtape, who's kind of uh, learning how to uh, ruin and wreck people's lives. That's kind of the the basic gist of the story. And there's uh, several sections, several chapters, where the uncle says to the the younger demon, uh, he speaks of the church, and he says, I don't mean the church as you and I see her as an army terrible with all of its banners spread out across the, uh, across the globe, uh, uh, untouched by time and space. As he's trying to, to get his nephew to remind and to speak of this, this human being about the church, and he goes on to say, I, I mean the, the church as we want them to know, as a building, gothic, you know, with its windows and buildings dry and dead. Don't, don't, don't let your person know about the church as it truly exists, an invisible, organic uh, army, terrible with all of its banners that knows its identity in the Lord. And I, I, this, this seems to be the case right here. Those who are on the outside see 
God's movement through his people and the devil and his demons, they tremble to this day. So she brings up God's might. We have seen, we, or, or at least we have heard, that God, your God, is capable of doing great things. The second thing she brings up is God's majesty is beautiful and holy and wonderful and glorious. Look at what she says in verse 11. As soon as we heard it, heard what? The story, all that God has done, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, here it is, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Here's a statement of her faith in Israel's God. Your God alone, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Your God is the actual God of the universe. I've come to see that through his mighty acts. Then Rahab responds to God's mercy. It's not that she saw true things. It's not like she had a Wednesday night Bible study and noticed some true things about God and then kind of backed up and said, oh, that's really lovely. Well, I'm going to go about my life. She responds to God's mercy. Not only in her entire speech, like when she asks the spies, hey, will you spare me? But also in her action towards the spies. Rahab gave up everything. She risked everything as an act of faith to save these spies because she knew that they were serving the one true God. And the spies respond by saying, hey, you know what? If you follow through with what you're saying, we'll spare you and your whole family. I think this is one of the most remarkable chapters in the book of Joshua. More even than uh, chapter uh, 10 or 11 where the sun stands still. More remarkable, I think, even than uh, where, when the walls of Jericho fall down just because God's people are shouting a lot. All of those are remarkable stories, some of which we're going to get to, but this seems to the, the most remarkable to me because in one of the most nationalistic feeling books of the Bible, we see someone on the outside of that nation looking in towards Israel. Someone on the outside of a nationalistic, theocratic nation looking inside, and we see Israel's God turning around to make contact with that outsider. A woman on the outside of the nation looking in, God stopping everything to make eye contact with her. We're being confronted with a picture of someone on the outside of God's people looking in and receiving mercy in a heartbeat. I think the danger for a lot of us is our proclivity to look inward at our own groove. It's, there's a word for that. It's called ethnocentrism, where we kind of just, it's, it's not uh, egocentrism, where I'm all about me. It's ethnocentrism. I'm all about my group. Uh, we have other words to describe that long word, cliques, factions, uh, things along those lines. And this is a proclivity and a danger for most of us. Have you noticed that whenever the first time you moved to Santa Barbara, it was really hard to get connected? Maybe not for some of you. Maybe you have that gift of being connected. But for a lot of people, just hard to get connected, hard to establish long-term deep friendships. It's hard to do that in churches. It's hard to do that out of churches just in life in Santa Barbara. Uh, It could be because people are spread out. It's definitely because we're busy. We have to hustle to pay our rent. Three jobs. You're working three jobs. You might have kids. There's a lot going on. There's so many variables playing into this. Hard 
to make long-lasting, deep, meaningful relationships. But perhaps for some of you, you made them. Maybe it took you three or four years, but you made them. You found that group, that group of people that you love, and they love you back. And that's amazing. Sometimes it only works halfway. But there's people in your life, and they kind of like you. And have you noticed this tendency, once you taste that here, to immediately protect the thing that you have? You might have even started, you know, plugged into a church. You're like, I'm going to make some friends and I'm going to meet everybody and I'm going to be on mission. I'm going to join 20 home groups and I'm going to go to the nations. I'm going to do every ministry and I'm going to just be present in my neighborhood and love everybody. And then you make a best friend. You're like, ah, just me and her or her. It's almost like that thing that has been so evasive becomes for you a treasure, for me a treasure. Once we get it, we just don't want to let anybody in. Maybe we don't want to start over. That is the danger of ethnocentrism, of cliques and factions, and our deep, idolatrous love for our group. And I think chapter 2 is a reminder. Don't forget about other people, because God has them. The people that we tend to forget about the most, the poor, the marginalized the stinky, the social outcasts, the ones who don't have quite as many privileges as we do, could be terrorists, could be your annoying neighbor, could be an annoying family member. It's unreached people groups. And the list can probably go on. The people we most suspect and maybe have a hand in keeping outside of our group are the ones who are ferociously loved by God. Enough to stop an entire book of the Bible to go off of that tangent. God is longing and waiting for people to repent and to come to him. He'll stop an entire mission involving uh, uh, the military power and strength of Joshua, stepping into a land, uh, achieving these promises that have been alive for centuries. He'll stop that for a moment to treat a prostitute who, who, who looks his way. One of the biggest uh, complaints against Christianity, which is a valid feeling, is the sense that there is evil in the world, and if there is a a God who exists, he should do something about that evil. How can God exist when suffering and evil likewise and simultaneously exist? And so for a lot of people, they'll leave the faith or the church or religion in general saying, uh, because there obviously is evil and suffering, there must not be a benevolent loving God, because if there was, he would certainly do something about those things. We can go on an hour-long tangent about what he is doing about those things, how he's breaking the chains of bondage and he has already defeated the power of the enemy at the cross and how he has empowered Christians to further that breaking of those chains and how one day he's going to come back and set his feet down on the Mount of Olives and he's going to rule from his throne over all principalities and powers and Satan will be tossed into the abyss forever and ever and ever and we will be surrounding his throne forever and ever and ever worshiping where there will be no tear and no suffering and no 
crying and no despair, but I won't talk about that. What I can say is that the reason God doesn't immediately eradicate evil right now is for love. Because where would that put millions of people whose hearts are still in rebellion to God? Where would that put your mom and dad who don't know God? Your brother, your brother-in-law, your next-door neighbor, your spouse, your kids. Where would that put some of you? God will take care of every evil thing and all suffering, and he will eradicate it forever, but he doesn't do it yet because he loves the very people who are riddled with evil. Peter, the apostle, would say in one of his letters, he would say it something like this. He said, God isn't slow the way that we think he's slow. Some of you may, may think, you know, I wish God would just do something about all of this. Peter says, God isn't slow the way that you think he's slow. He's not slow. He's patient. Not wanting anybody to perish, but everybody to come to repentance. And so God waits. The point of this section of scripture, I think, is that you may feel like you're too far gone. Maybe you're even in here in a church environment and you feel out of place. Like, I don't belong here. I don't fit in with these people. I've made too many mistakes. I look a certain way. I do a certain thing. I vote a certain way. I'm passionate about certain things. I don't belong here. But this word to Rahab is also a word to you that it doesn't matter where you came from or who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't even matter what you're gonna do. You are not outside of God's redeeming power. Verses 22 through 24 ask another question and the final question. If what we're looking at here is we see a picture of people on the outside looking in, we see God on the inside looking out at them, this last question is, what type of person does God find himself fighting for? Read with me verse 22 through 24. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. What is the type of person God fights for? Perhaps you're in this room asking, I wish God would fight for me. What's the criteria that I need to have in my life for God to, you know, look my way? Look at this line in verse 24. The spies bring back a good report to Joshua, and they say, The Lord has given all the land into our hands. I want you to ask this question of yourself. Who are the spies speaking about? Who's our? The Lord has given all the land into our hands. Who's our? 
Well, I think we'd have to say Israel, right? Obviously, it's Israel. The spies are Israelite. They're speaking to Joshua, who's an Israelite, about the people of God who are Israelites. But then I'd have to say, which Israelites are they talking about? Because for the first five books of the Bible, God has been promising Israelites that they would have the land. And in the book of Numbers, we actually see every single one of that original generation die out because they were too rebellious, too stubborn, too hard-headed, too close-minded, and too little in faith to believe God that he, uh, uh, for the things that he said. So it's not all of them. It's the new generation that's actually risen up and said, yeah, God said it. I believe he's going to do it. Let's go get it. The type of person God fights for, we'd have to say, is this new generation of people who are willing to follow God into whatever he calls them to do. What's he calling you to do? What's he calling us to do? But I don't think it's over right there. I think our would also have to include Rahab, strangely enough. The Canaanite prostitute in the city of Jericho. The land that is about to be conquered is about to still be her land. An outsider who is willing to forsake everything to follow Israel's God. And so, it's not your ethnicity. It's not your family heritage. It's not your church attendance. It's not your giving or your religion. It's not how much knowledge you have about God that moves the heart of God on your behalf. It's your response to his free gift of love that seems to be what pushes his hand towards his people. This is what happened with the the later Israelite generation. It's what happened to Rahab who doesn't even belong to that group. So we'd have to say, well, how do we respond to God in that way? You know, the New Testament would later bring up Rahab three times. Here's the first one. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith. How do you respond to God? By faith. Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. It's by faith that we we respond to God. Now, you might think of faith as some ethereal uh, act of the mind where you, you kind of intellectually ascend to some belief or doctrine. Like, yeah, I believe that God is something. That's cool. That's not the type of faith that the whole Bible has in its view. And you can even see that right here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab, such and such, did something that moved her to help the spies. This is a faith that ends up doing something. That's what the Apostle James would later say when he kind of rephrases the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 25. He said, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? In other words, James is kind of uh, twisting uh, backwards the same thing that the author of Hebrews says. 
Rahab was saved, and this is what Christians uh, believe, this is what evangelical Christians believe, we are saved not by our merit, but by our faith in Christ alone. There is nothing that we bring to the table, there is nothing that we can do to beautify ourselves, to make us look more attractive to God, there is nothing that we can add to our lives to make God want to want us, he already wants us by grace because of his sheer love. And the only way that we can respond to that in a saving way is to trust in that and to receive it. Rahab was saved by faith alone. But here's the second part that we have to add to that sentence. Saving faith is never alone. You're saved by faith in Christ alone, but your faith will never be alone. Saving faith moves people who have it to respond to the God of promise. And here Rahab, out of an act of trust, gives up everything to follow the God of Israel. I love what would later be told of Rahab. What God made out of her. You can imagine a prostitute stuck in a wall in a desert. Not the way most of us want to go out. Not the thing most of us envision for our lives. I'm sure it wasn't what she envisioned for her life either. And here she is in one of the worst jobs, if you can even call it that, in humanity, stuck in a wall. And to make matters worse, she sees an army as terrible with all of its banners approaching and she knows because she's heard of this God that her city is about to be destroyed. Perhaps she felt trapped. Perhaps she felt like there was nothing in front of her to pursue. Perhaps uh, she felt like there was nothing that would be made of her life. And yet, what does God make out of Rahab? He uses her to expand his kingdom. He uses her to save the entire nation of Israel for that chapter. He doesn't just deliver Rahab out of a bad uh, way of life. He doesn't just deliver her and then stick her into the corner as though, uh, you know, she were a, a dirty person that shouldn't touch or break anything in his house. She delivers this woman and then gives her a legacy. Let me read to you Matthew, the third place where she turns up, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Uh, you can turn there if you want, but it'll also be on the screen. I'll just read it out. But this is, a, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, a book written to Jews to persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been looking for. This is also the, the first part of the one-year Bible readings that you up and open up to and you're very discouraged because you were so excited to get into the story of Jesus and you open it up and it's like, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, baka, 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 Hezron, the father of Ram, and so on and so forth. When I, sorry. When I was a kid, when I was like 10 years old, uh, for church, I had all the, ki- uh, all the kids my age recite from memory uh, Matthew chapter 2. It's like the, the narrative story of Jesus' birth. But I, having the hard time paying attention that I do, thought it was chapter 1 that we were supposed to memorize. And so all, the, all these kids went up at that church service and just been, began reciting this beautiful story of Jesus' birth. And I got up there and I was just all, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham, and so on and so forth. And everyone was like, oh, I'm in a dab, that's awesome. 
but we kind of treat, that's kind of our, our, our approach to genealogies. Why are they there and why am I reading them? Well, I want you to remember Matthew is a book written to Jews, as I said earlier, persuading them that Jesus is the one that they've been looking for. What's the first line Matthew opens up with? This is the book of the family of Jesus Christ. He came from the son of David and the son of Abraham. And in one sentence, two of the most powerful people in Israel's line are named and connected to Jesus. Then it goes on. Look. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. There's another Moabite person on the outside, and Obed the father of Jesse, and we all know who Jesse was. Jesse would uh, later give birth to a series of people who would lead us to Jesus. I love the fact that this genealogy brings up three women who are on the outside looking in. And God doesn't just deliver them from the outside, give them a popsicle, and kick them to the corner. He pulls them into one of the most powerful, persuasive, and compelling stories of redemption that the world would ever hear. A hooker makes it into the messianic line. She would later give birth to a line that would usher in the reigning king. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that this king, Jesus, is the full expression of the Father's glory. So Rahab was over here on the scene with her people saying to the spies, you know what, we heard stories about your God. We heard that he is mighty. We heard that he is majestic. We heard that he is merciful. But she would later give birth to a man who would give full expression to that majesty, to that might, and to that mercy. The one who would come and live a perfect life, ushering in the kingdom of God once and for all, dying for the redemption of people on the outside looking in and rising to give them a new kind of life. Rahab was a part of a great legacy because she gave up a smaller one to follow God's. How many of you are in this building right now saying, nothing could possibly happen with my life? I have a dead-end job, I have a dead-end husband or wife. My kids are a mess. My family is a mess. I have no degree. I have nothing to look forward to. I can't even get my life together. I'm rattled and uh, 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 riddled with addictions and all sorts of temptations. I can't even handle my own heart, much less other people's lives. Nothing could possibly be made up of me. Jesus is here to say, If I can take someone who lives in a wall and sells her body for a living and turn her into something beautiful, I can do anything that I want with you if you believe it. If I can take tax collectors and prostitutes 
and the impoverished and the homeless, and I can show the beauty that is already latent within them as people that have been created in my own image. I can do anything that I want with you. Where is your belief? Jesus would later say in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He's telling a parable in order to describe a truth that for the person who really sees the kingdom of God and understands it, that thing, that kingdom of God is so valuable to them that they are they are willing to lose anything in order to stay in it or to apprehend it. Jesus is putting words around what Rahab did. She could have lost everything. She gave up her comfort and her security and her ambitions because she saw a glimpse of God's kingdom and it was compelling enough for her to drop everything. And so God made her into everything. God fights for the type of people who say, I so believe and take seriously all that God says. His purpose, his mission, that I am going to rearrange my entire life around it. And some of you right now are missing out on God's promises because of a lack of rearrangement. You have said, uh, in another manner of speaking, I like what God is doing, but I also like what I am doing and Hopefully those two things can coexist even though they're opposite from one another. Some of you from a lack of seriousness and engagement saying that's cool for Sundays and I'll do it for 40 minutes but the rest of my life I want to live for myself. It's not always the Rahabs that are missing out on the promises of God but the Christians who just don't believe It's the Christians, not always the Rahabs, who are missing out the most because of a lack of utter imagination. It's Christians, most times, not the Rahabs, who are missing out on God's kingdom because they simply cannot see it. Their eyes are glued to what they're doing and their eyes need to be elevated to what God is doing around them. And some of you, perhaps, are coasting along hoping to get into heaven with your get-out-of-jail card, get-out-of-jail-free card, not even knowing how your faith connects to the rest of your life. And God is writing this section of Scripture in part to say, there's more to it than paycheck to paycheck. There's more to it than just moving through every single day in fatigue and despair, going to church, going through all of the motions, you know something that's interesting about this, this story? The town of Shittim is in the same place Israel hoard themselves out to idols in Numbers chapter 25 verse 1. In Numbers chapter 25 verse 1, in one of the most explicit and embarrassing acts of rebellion and idol worship, Israel, the Bible puts it in these terms, they whore themselves out to idols and reject their God and they die for it. Israel was supposed to step into their legacy and instead they committed idolatry. Perhaps there are some of you here who have been coasting along on the coattails of Christianity. You don't know why. 
you're doing the Christian thing, you know it might be kind of important, but you don't know how it connects to anything that you're doing. And so you aren't on mission. You aren't serious about being Christ-like. You don't love your spouse like Christ loves the church and so on and so forth. You aren't growing. You aren't maturing. You look just the same as your unbelieving neighbor. If you were to examine each other's lives, you're, you're not different. And perhaps you're wondering, am I supposed to be different? Yes. Right there in this town, where in Numbers 25 verse 1, Israel whore themselves out to idols, God would one day revisit that place in Joshua chapter 2 and redeem their brokenness. He would poise Israel for victory right in the spot where they blew that victory. And he can do the same for you. Some of you have blown it. Some of you have done things and thought things that maybe you're too embarrassed even to tell other believers about. And God can redeem anything in your life that you have destroyed or that the enemy has destroyed or that other people have destroyed. But like Israel, he might bring you back to the broken, painful places in order to do it. Are you willing to go there? Is healing and transformation worth it that much to you to go back? Some of you are trying to hide your brokenness from God, like if you don't talk about it and think about it, he won't notice. Or even if he does notice, like you're hiding it from other believers because you want to put on a face, you want to look better than you actually are. And maybe you've been doing that for years and you just feel caught in this religiosity game. You feel caught without any way forward, like the spies. And some of you are continuing to hide your brokenness from God, but God wants to enter into your brokenness and make something beautiful out of it. And so he takes Israel, a generation later, back to the very place where they blew it, and he causes them to view the land. I think God wants to do the same thing with some of you. Take you back to the painful places, just so that he could tell you, I can do something with this. You say, yeah, but that's, a, that's messy. If we become transparent and honest with our pain and with our brokenness, this is going to get messy really quick. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's already, become, it's already gotten messy. And it's going to get even messier. But I'd rather live in a messy church where people have sin and shameful things an embarrassing, humiliating baggage, knowing that God is present there to make all things new, than to go another week pretending like we all have it together and he is not present to change anything. So if you want to get messy, not for the, not for the sake of messiness, but for the sake of transformation, I want to ask anybody in this room, in the quietness of your own heart, to say with me and with each other, Heavenly Father, take me. Take me back into the mess. Take me into the places that you want to bring healing to. Take me into the places that you want to bring transformation to. Whether you're a Rahab 
metaphorically speaking, or a seasoned Christian, there's a question we need to begin asking ourselves, and I'm going to ask the, the band to come up as we begin to sing. I'm going to ask you two questions, and I want you to reflect on both of these questions in silence with me together. I don't want you to just give a Sunday school answer like, yes! I want you to be honest with God, because it might be, no! The first place we have to start is, is being honest and transparent with God. And if you're struggling, you need to tell him that. Here's my first question for a few seconds. Let's, let's honestly ask ourselves the answer to these questions. First one is this. How much of God's fullness do you really want in your life right now? How much do you want God to invade your space right now? As you're looking out on the promises like the spies did, everything that God says is available to you in Christ, how much of that do you really want? The answer to that might be easy. Say, I want it all. This is my second question. This is where I end. What in your life do you need to let go of to receive all that God has promised to give you? What do you need to let go of to receive all that God has for you? I think that's a week-long question. Let's start now. There's carpets at the front if you want to get on your face and continue to ask that question. It's the elements, the bread and the cup to the right and to the left, also up on the mezzanine floor. If you want to take of that and remind yourself of God's might, his majesty, and his mercy. Prayer teams to the right and to the left also upstairs. You just want someone to lay hands on you and to pray with you. Maybe you don't even know what to pray for yourself. Let someone else do it. But ask that question.